Los Angeles, 1937. There are lots of guys like J.J. Gittes. They're easy to find, if you want to find them. Mr. Gittes, have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. Since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. I don't get tough with anyone, Mr. Gittes. My lawyer does. You do your job. And sometimes you find the answers to questions that should never be asked. Or you find out what happens to people who ask them. Hold it down, kitty cat. You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to a nosy fellow? I dislike the word cheat. Did you have affairs? Mr. Giddies. Did he know about it? Where were you when your husband died? You were seeing someone, too. For very long? I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Giddies. It's difficult for me. Mr. Giddies, you're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want to take an advantage of. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the Essential Films. I'm Adolfo Acosta, and I'm joined by someone who's not my sister or my daughter, but my podcast host, Mr. Marcia Espinosa. What's going on, everybody? What's up, Adolfo? It's going okay. It's going okay. Um, as we record this, it's uh, early December as 2020 continues to... <laughs> beat down on on the on the us in this world you know we're still surviving through it how about you same you know it's 2020 we're still in the middle of a pandemic 
they're still threatening us with shutdowns, especially where I live. So it, it's and on top of all that, it's Christmas. It's well, it's trying to be Christmas. It has much Christmas as uh, I guess society will allow it to be. But you know, we're we're trying to make do. You know, we put the lights on, we put the tree up. You know, we're trying to get through as normal, but obviously this is not a normal year. But we're doing the best we can. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing here. You know, we're just uh, we're making it happen. <laughs> This episode, we'll, we will be discussing the 1974 uh, noir film, uh, Chinatown, uh, directed by Roman Polanski, uh, produced by the immortal Robert Evans, written by Robert Town, and starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Hillerman, Perry Lopez, Burt Young, and John Huston, with cinematography by John A. Alonzo. Uh, it was released by Paramount Pictures on June 20th, 1974. So this... Before we get to started on this, um, I don't believe we've done a Polanski film before. Uh, at least I don't no, think, I don't so. think so. Uh, so this is our first Polanski movie. Yeah. Um, so let's just put the disclaimer out there. We know. We know. <laughs> I'm I glad can't... you're saying you're saying it first and not me. So. Yeah, we know. He's not a good person. We know what he did, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the content of the film itself. And the art, the artistry, and the, the craft, and behind it, we're not going to get into whether or not he should still be making movies or not, or whether he should be in jail or not. I no, it's not the point of this podcast. Just so you know, we know. Let's move on from there. Okay, so this is our uh, this is a Chinatown. Um, I would classify this film as a, as, a, as a noir, even though it's yeah. uh, even though it's in color, but it has. You know all the stylistic elements and certainly the um, thematic elements. Uh, what what uh, when did you first experience Chinatown? What was your first time you saw it? It's similar in a way to my experience to All About Eve in the sense that I pretty much went on a purchase spree at one point when there was a sale going on, and this happened to be on sale in a steelbook form. And I've been collecting. I I started collecting steelbooks back in like. Oof, like 2010, I think, 2009, 2010, I started collecting Blu-ray steelbooks, and I always look for sales when it comes to some of those, like, really good ones. I think Amazon, I think it was Amazon, they had a sale going for some of the old Warner Brothers ones, like, so, that were pretty much, they're not like some of the nice ones that come out now, that have, like, the cool artwork inside or anything, it's it's kind of some, it's a steelbook, you know, packaging, but it's just kind of like a plain, uh, plain bare bones kind, where it's just, you see, like, maybe the poster art, or just, like, some random art, and then that's all you get. Like, it's not embossed. It's not, like, anything cool inside. It's just the steelbook, right, with, you know, with possibly, like, the picture of the actors on it. So that's what happened with the first uh, Chinatown release, uh, steelbook release. And I think it was on sale for, like, 10 bucks, And I purchased it along with a few other ones that were uh, that were on my list. I got around to watching it. And, I mean, and this is only just, like I said, like, maybe 10 years ago. Maybe not even. I would just say within the last 10 years. It's one of those movies that it's you have to watch it again. You you don't get the full effect the first time. With a lot of these noirs, with a lot of these like detective movies or spy movies or murder mysteries, you know, the first time you watch it, you're going completely blind as to what's going to happen. So you like your excitement 
Your excitement's at an all-time high. That's why there's, there's never a first. There's you never get that first time back when it comes to these movies, uh, and that experience, that emotion that you feel after it was all said and done. I was like, oh, I have to watch this again. So I think maybe the next week I put it on again. And when you see th- these types of movies the second time, you really get to appreciate the signs, like the little clues. This is going to happen or that's going to happen. And it, you kind of just appreciate the craft even more because it's obvious that the director is putting little clues here for you that if you're eagle-eyed, you could probably find them the first time. But the fact that, you know, you needed the second viewing or even the third viewing sometimes, that kind of just enhances the rewatchability of these films. And it makes that little discovery that you find all the more satisfying as a movie fan. Uh, and that's the case with Chinatown for me. It's one of those movies that, you know, I watched it the first time. I was just amazed, and uh, especially by by the ending. The ending was, was was pretty pretty intense. Who doesn't love Jack Nicholson? Like this is probably the well, the perfect character for Jack Nicholson to play because he plays similar characters like in other movies. But what he did here as a Jake Giddies is just just really amazing work. And then to have Faye Dunaway as his counterpart. And it, they, those two have a great chemistry together. And it was just really, it was amazing to be able to watch them kind of tee off against one another in a lot of their scenes together. But yeah, I mean, we'll get more into the meat and bones of, of the uh, of the film as, as we go through it. But it, again, amazing movie and highly, highly rewatchable. You know, these types of movies usually are, but they're just... This one in particular, you have a lot of fun with multiple viewings of it. Yeah, I, you know, to, to echo your point, this this is a movie that rewards rewatching because there is a mystery at the, in, in this film, but the mystery of the murder is actually not as important as the rest of the story, right. which is interesting. It's just kind of there to get things rolling and to get the plot moving. It, it's not really that, as pivotal as to all the other things that are happening in the film. I first saw this film in college in one of my film classes um, and nothing much really more other than that the, the report as far as the first time I saw it. But yeah, the first time I saw it was in college and it was a great experience, you know. Um, but again, you know, you don't get everything the first time you watch it. You know, you have to kind of watch it again to kind of notice not only just like the kind of deeper conspiracy that's happening and figure that out. But also just to get more of the little details go in the film as well. And it, when you know how, you know, for example, what ends up happening with Faye Dunaway's character at the end, when you see her in the beginning, you kind of catch different things that different dialogue or just choices in acting that can kind of predict, not predict, but kind of give away or or know that she once you know that information, like, oh, I see why she's saying that or oh, I see why she's acting like that. So um, yeah, it's it's a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic film. Like you said, Jack Jack Nicholson at his absolute best. I mean, this is it's weird to see not weird but fun to see him a young, slim Jack Nicholson, very active, you know, very charming, but still very much Jack Nicholson. Because the last movie we saw was another Jack Nicholson movie, uh, The Shining, where he had you know he was going crazy, but in this film he's he's very charming, very like with it very smart and intelligent uh very cunning you know a lot a lot of people make fun of how he speaks and like to imitate him but he does have a pretty good range of, of uh, as an actor and there's a very much different uh, performance than uh, than the jack torrance performance we saw last time right it's just uh it's a tour de force by him man and then i mean and i was gonna bring that up too like what a juxtaposition in a way like you have 
Jack Nicholson from The Shining we talked about last time, and then Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, just two completely different characters, all embodied by the same guy. Uh, just really a testament to his range as an actor. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is kind of one of the this is one of those kind of movie years that were kind of amazing. Like uh, this this movie was in the getting nominated for an Academy Award, but it was up against The Godfather Two. It was up against The Conversation. You know, it was it was a it was a big movie year. Um, and any other year, I think this could have won. You know, because it was just so good. This is definitely a rewatch movie. You got to rewatch this movie several times. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, it, it not only is it really worth for you watching, uh, you know, over and over to kind of understand the story more and to kind of catch the little, you know, little hints here, here and there. Like it rewards you for doing that. Just, you know, kind of, just like, like I said, get a better understanding of everything. You kind of see where things are going ahead of time now with those subsequent viewings. And maybe you might catch something else that you haven't seen, you know, in the last two, three viewings. Like, I, I love that about movies sometimes. Like, you just catch, like, you can watch something like ten times. And on the tenth time, you'll catch something you didn't see the first time. And it's just, and it'll just enhance the story for you that much more. So, just get, I don't have a lot of background notes on this, but just to get a couple of things in here. Um. So the movie came about because uh, Robert Evans initially wanted to make The Great Gatsby, and uh, he he offered uh, Robert Town uh, the job of doing The Great Gatsby, but uh, Town decided he couldn't surpass or live up to uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's work, so he instead countered with uh, a lesser amount of money, and I forget what the exact figures were, to write basically his own story, which ended up being Chinatown. And probably good, probably a good call because I've seen the 1970s version of The Great Gatsby, and it's not very good. It's Robert Redford in it. Uh, for, better than the Leo one, though. I'd actually say the Leo one is better than that one. Really? Me. Yeah, because at least, at least it has like style going for it. The the one the 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 one with Robert Redford is just very very dry. It's very. Yeah. But yeah, so he ended up writing uh, uh, Chinatown, and then it was supposed to be part of a trilogy uh, with the Jake Gittes character. Uh, the second one being The Two Jakes, uh, which is a movie that eventually came out in 1990, and it was directed by Nicholson himself. And then a third one, which was called Giddis versus Giddis, which was never made. I've never seen The Two Jakes. Uh, I've I've heard mixed reviews on it, and I kind of just don't want to see a sequel to this. You know, I just kind of want to yeah, leave it. Yeah, me either. But uh, it, it, and a lot of people say it doesn't really live up to the to the standards of this one. So it was supposed to be three movies, but the because The Two Jakes didn't, do very well if the third one was scrapped yeah which I, I agree with like i don't think i'm ever gonna watch the two i might watch it for curiosity's like one day but i didn't have no urge to or want to because again like this story is really just this is it this one movie is really just encapsulates the story that i want to hear anyway the other thing that uh i wanted to bring up is that you know at the center of the story is uh kind of the this drought in los angeles and how there's kind of some machinations between people who own access to the water. And um, apparently this was, while not a true story, it's kind of based on certain, a couple of disasters that happened around uh, uh, in that area. The St. Francis Dam disaster in 1928, it, it apparently like killed 42 people. Actually, sorry, it killed 600 people and 42 of them were children. And yeah, this has been like, it, apparently it's based on this disaster or, or it's inspired by this disaster. So that's kind of, I don't know if you have any other like background notes before we get into it. That's kind of all I had right now. Uh, not really. Yeah, I was just going off, kind of take it off of your cue there. So we, we, we start the movie off. What I love about this is the movie kind of starts off 
kind of in like an old timey way. Like we're about to watch like a movie, like a gangster or detective movie from the 1940s. Just by the way the, the opening credits even look, they're like, uh, you know, like they're kind of sepia toned over like a sepia toned background. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it has like that kind of feel to it already. It feels like you're about to watch like a Humphrey Bogart movie or something. Um, I really, I really love just the opening credits themselves. Yeah. A uh, very stylistic choice there, and it kind of you already it puts you in that mood already uh, for what's about to come. So it's good. I, I love it. But of course, the first image we see is very much not uh, from the 1940s uh, because we see um, uh, what we end up seeing is a uh, someone going through different pictures of uh, people having sex, and as we <laughs> pull out. Um, we notice that it's a uh, Paulie from Rocky, a couple two years. Ago. <laughs> That's right. Looking through these pictures, um, some very explicit pictures, and we kind of piece together that he's in a private detective's office, and those pictures are more likely his, more than likely his wife, and now he's found out that she's been cheating on him. Yeah, so pretty much right away, the stylistic choices in the film, you you get kind of that stylistic uh, office that you see in those movies from the forties uh, with the Venetian blinds. Uh, and actually, I think he even uh, Giddis says something about the Venetian blinds, about how he just had them installed. And, you know, he's a private investigator. He clearly does some, like, shady stuff to make his money. Right away, you're kind of brought into, like, who this guy is and what he does for money. Yeah, this is a, you already get a sense of the of the character uh, of Jake Giddis here. Um, you, you see what he does for a living. So obviously, like, really only seedy people or kind of kind of scummy people kind of get into that line of work and he seems to be right at home with it so it already tells you a lot about like the kind of person that he is uh and then you know that's kind of a good foundation to start and then we get to know more about him as the film goes on like what kind of person he is as well but it's it, like i said it, it's a good start it's a good foundation for the character and what i like about it is that even though he's a basically kind of a a cd scummy kind of character he kind of presents himself as not that, right? He yeah. presents himself as someone who makes an honest living and who, who is very, uh, you know, very charming and very, uh, you know, not sleazy at all, but he does sleazy work, right? Right. Uh, so as soon as he kind of um, says goodbye to Burt Young and, you know, he, he has another another client waiting for him, uh, someone who's, whose name who claims to be Mrs. Evelyn Melray, and we'll find out a little bit more about that later, um, played by Diane Ladd here, uh, and she is saying that she believes that her husband is having an affair, and she wants him to follow him and um, and get proof. And what's interesting here is that Giddis tries to dissuade her from it. He tries to talk her out of it. Yeah, I think he basically tells her, you know, just go home and forget about it. And, you know, she's sitting there saying, you know, well, I can't, you know, I need to know. I don't come cheap, he basically says to her. And she goes, well, money is not, not an issue. Like, okay, like, if you insist... But like he kept trying to say, you know, just you know, go home, forget about it. I'm sure it's gonna be fine. She kept insisting. So even he tried to 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 put her off, saying, you know, uh, it's expensive. And when she said, well, I can afford it, he said, all right, fine. If you if you're that desperate, I'll take your money. But yeah, and again, this 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 is very noir like. You see, like the um, one of the kind of staples of noir movies is like that light coming in through Venetian blinds, right? And and you see the. The shadows across Giddis's face and on the walls of the Venetian blinds coming down. Um, the the costume choice of of Mrs. Mulray, quote unquote. Uh, she's got that little hat with the veil over it, you know, with the fur coat. 
you know, it's very indicative of, of the time of the 1940s. Uh, she's got that like cigarette holder as she's speaking. It's like it, it really is like other than the language, you know, that's used in the film, um, the R-rated language that's used in the film. It's pretty much looks like it's going to be like one of those kind of movies that you see with Humphrey Bogart playing, you know, Sam Spade or something. Yeah, we then jump into Giddis, uh, like kind of attending like a town hall. Hollis Mulray, the man that he's supposed to be following, is a is kind of the uh, chief engineer of uh, the the L.A. Department of Water. And uh, as he's kind of you know as he's following him around, he gets up and he sees that uh, Mulray is basically talking. You know, people want to build this dam that's going to help them with this drought, but he's basically saying, you know, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna hold. It'll collapse. I refuse to build this dam. And you know it's not it's not a very popular decision, um, but uh, he, we kind of get to know what's going on with Mulray here. And I like this because like this is again this is now the foundation for the whole conspiracy we're going to see later. Obviously, the first time you're watching it, like it, I wouldn't be surprised if people tended to get bored during these parts here, especially in the beginning when he's following around Mulray and you get to this scene like in the in the town hall, because you know you're thinking, okay, what the hell does this have to do with you, you know? It, it, it's boring, like just political stuff like you know just kind of you know mundane you know uh, Mulray lives a very mundane life in a way right and you know you're sitting there the first time you're, you know you're watching this movie and you're thinking ugh, you know like what, what's the point but then what I love is you know on subsequent viewings you understand th- this is setting up the whole conspiracy now you understand you know why you know they wanted to kill Mulray or what the whole what the big deal was with kind of using the drought to kind of steal water or, or I mean We'll explain the whole thing later, but yeah, but on subsequent viewings, you really appreciate this scene because it kind of just lays out, it, it builds, it it's, lays out the foundation for what's going to come and what kind of sets up the whole drama that the whole movie is really built on. Yeah, and um, and he's when he's explaining it, he's he's has this chart where he's showing like uh, how the dam, what the what the land that it's going to be built on is structured, and he's like. Look, this at when last time we built it like this, you know, over 500 people died because of this one disaster, which I'm assuming is the uh, based on that um, St. Francis Dam disaster right. we were talking about earlier. Um, and he's like, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. Uh, and then shortly afterwards, you see like these farmers kind of bust in and say, We need water, we need our land, blah, blah, blah. And like they're yelling at him. Um, and you can see he's like, feels bad about it. He's conflicted. Like, He's a good person, generally. Like, he doesn't want to build this dam, not because of any other reasons other than that, like, it's dangerous to build that dam. But also, he also understands that it's, that, you know, farmers are hurting and they need some water and and this dam would help with that. So it's an interesting, uh, you kind of get a little bit, you don't see much of Mulray because he ends up being the spoiler, the victim of the murder case. Uh, But it's, it's an interesting, um, it's interesting look into his character. Yeah. One thing I want to point out about this scene that I don't know why it's there, but I, th- I find it funny that I never noticed before is like as the, as you cut into the scene, like and like people are up there like debating, there's like some like there's some like person on the council member just reading comics like from the from the newspaper, like the <laughs> and like and you see him a couple of times. You see him from behind just reading the comic section. I don't know why that was included, but I thought that was funny. Yeah, me too. It's just like, you know, I guess it makes you think a little bit like why would somebody just go to a, a town hall just to kind of read comics all day? But I, I don't know. Maybe there's something deeper that we're not really thinking about. But 
I mean, it's, it's just funny to look at in a way. So then, so when we get some more uh, scenes of him following Mulray around, and at first we see him kind of stop at this bridge where it pretty much looks like a river's been dried out, and Mulray's just kind of walking along the riverbed where there's basically there's barely a little stream kind of going through it, and he's like picking up the soil and examining it, and um, he's, you know, so Giddy's is watching him do that. And then he follows him to like like a beach or something where there's like a I mean it's like one of those sewer pipes, isn't it? Yeah, but like yeah, it's like a sewer pipe. And he's at this thing and he's just kind of waiting and he's like looking at the sea and he kind of just waits all day until it finally spits out a bunch of water, which is like something he was like investigating as well. So Mulray has his own investigation going on, unbeknownst to everyone else. And Mulray and uh, Giddis is basically watching him investigate something completely different. Um, and he did a cool trick where he wasn't didn't want to stay watching him all night, so he did this cool trick where he took like a watch, <laughs> and it's funny because he had like a whole glove compartment full of watches, but he took like yeah. a watch, and then put it underneath the tires of his car so that whenever Mulray left, the 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 car would run over it, and then he would know what time Mulray left. Yes, that <laughs> ingenious. So yeah, right now it's just a whole lot of him just going around watching Mulray do his own investigation. I think at the tail end of that whole sequence. He finally uh, catches him meeting up with a woman, which at this point, you know, we're led to assume that's the mistress. So, like, you know, he's taking her, like, on a, on a boat ride, and then uh, uh, Giddis is following him <laughs> on a boat. They, I think he follows him to, like, a, I think maybe a restaurant or, like, an, one of those outdoor dining patio places. Like, they have brunch or whatever. So he's getting all these pictures of the two of them together, and I think somehow gets in the paper. The next day, but yeah, so it, it turned it, at this point, Giddy feels okay. I got him now. Like, after all this, you know, boring, you know, him going to the beach or all that, I finally found what I was looking for. But before we get there, remember, there was also the point where he got pictures of, of him arguing with Noah Cross. Um, well, we didn't know who that was yet. We, yeah, we don't know who it was. An old man, man that he's arguing with, and uh, and that becomes important a little later, but yeah. Would you say somehow it got into the paper? I see. I always assumed, or I always kind of thought they implied that he sold the pictures to the paper, or you know, or he like you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, they leaked. I don't know how they leaked, you know, to the paper. Which I mean, you could be right, but I I remember like he's always like surprised that that they're in there. Like when they mention it to him, maybe that's just him like obviously being sleazy and just lying about it. But like he's very convincing when he's oh, I don't know how, how they got there. I don't know why my name is on there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I don't know, because the reason I think it is is because there's that scene in the barbershop where, like, his barber is talking about that specific article, and then there's the guy next to him that's like, well, I think that's a sleazy profession or blah, blah, blah. And he just gets way too defensive about it to the yeah. point where I think it's, like, over overcompensating, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean, for the fact that he took the pictures and, and took him and took him to the paper. They don't ever say who it is. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, But I, I just feel like, to me... It seems like it was him that leaked them. And it would be within his character to do it. So it's believable, you know. And then following this, we get one of the few actually comedic moments of the of the film. Uh, as he gets back to his office, he's trying to tell his, like, two associates a really dirty joke. Um, and <laughs> this is great. It's a really long, dirty joke. And they keep trying to, like, give him, like, a, a nudge, like, hey, Jake, Jake. And she's like, no, shut up. I'm trying to tell the joke. You're going to love this. Jake, Duffy, listen to me, man. I want to tell you a story. So there's this guy, Walsh, you understand? He's tired of screwing his wife. Jake, so wait a, a second, Duffy. You're always in such a hurry. So his friend says to him, hey, 
Why don't you do it like the Chinese do? So he says, well, how do the Chinese do it? And the guy says, well, the Chinese, first they screw a little bit, then they stop. They go and uh, read a little Confucius, come back, screw a little bit more, then they stop again, go back, and they screw a little Jake. bit more. Walsh, just listen to me for a second. I mean, you love this. Now, <clears throat> then they go back and they screw a little bit more, and then they go out and they contemplate the moon or something like that. It makes it more exciting. So now... The guy goes home and he starts screwing his own wife. See? So he screws her for a little bit and then he stops and he goes out of the room and he reads Life magazine. Then he goes back in, he starts screwing again. He says, excuse me for a minute, honey. And he goes out and he smokes a cigarette. Now his wife is getting sore as hell. He comes back in the room, he starts screwing again. He gets up to start to leave again to go look at the moon. She looks at him and says, hey, what's the matter with you? You're screwing just like a Chinaman. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, keeps going, talks about, he goes through this dirty joke, and then finally he finishes the joke, starts laughing, and he turns around, and uh, uh, a, a woman client is standing there, and then he finds out that her name is also Mrs. Mulray, and uh, she basically explains to him, I never hired you, I, I don't know who this is, but I'm going to sue you. So we find out that the first Mrs. Mulray was a fake. Obviously, you know, she says to him, like you, like you just said, you know, I never hired you. Uh, and basically, you'll be hearing from my attorney, who's ironically enough standing right there next to her. So I think he I think he already like issues him like the, the summons or whatever at that point, like as he leaves. But uh, but yeah, it turns out and then even he's like in shock. Like I, I just got bamboozled by somebody. And now it becomes like his mission to find out who who tried to screw with him. Yeah, this whole thing, yeah, exactly. This whole thing now starts as like, okay, I've been made a fool of. I don't like being made a fool of because I'm the person who makes fool of other people. So now I'm going to go find out who's screwing with me so I can get back at them. And then it turns into something much, much, much deeper. Yeah. So, so first he goes to visit Mulray at his office, but he's not there. Um, and he kind of uh, starts talking to his like associate, uh, Mr. Yelburton. Um, who is, uh, I forget what his exact, um, position is. Um, but, uh, as he kind of snoops around Mulray's office and then Yale Burton comes to get him and they kind of have a, you know, little conversation about the, the water and, uh, and the power and everything. And, uh, what I like about this here is that he takes, uh, he takes a bunch of Yale Burton's, uh, business cards for use a little later. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a great setup. I mean, when you first watch it, you're thinking like, okay, like. Why is he? But but then it makes sense later, and I, I love that. Like all these little things that on the on the surface level just make no sense. Like the, you ha they have they each have their little payoffs later. You know you know as I was just thinking about this, um, uh, as I was uh, you know who what his performance reminds me of in this film. It reminds me of his performance as Jack Napier in Batman before he gets you know becomes a Joker, kind of like that sleazy, like hustler kind of guy as i was watching it this last time it uh i it hit me at one particular scene when he does the jack nicholson smile and it's just like the jack napier one like that that i i got the similarity there but i definitely see what you're coming from like it's just he it just he has that that similar demeanor you know and i mean obviously you find out you know as the movie progresses, he's much more, I guess, noble in a way than uh, than Jack Napier. But I, I can see the dis the distinction there. So afterwards, um, 
he he runs into like this uh kind of bruiser dude named Mulvihill. Like what I don't know exactly how what his former position was, but he knows him well, just being from being a private investigator. And he's clearly like a guy who's like not exactly on the up and up. He's there to like uh enforce things. And he's and he's standing in the uh the water building and and uh Giddis knows that something's a little interesting with that, a little off with that. Yeah. This is the is this the one wait, this isn't where he this is that night, right? Or wait. No, no, this is like right as he leaves the Department of Water, like as he from Yelburton's office, he like Oh, up. okay. He goes back to the to the spot, but now like the cops are there, right? Yeah, so now he's going. Now he went to, um, then he goes to Mrs. Mulray's house just to give to talk to her and said, you know, basically saying, "Look, someone made me look stupid. I need to find out how, and I need to ask you some questions about it." Um, and she he, she finds a cup, uh, gets a couple, some information from her, but basically she she finds out that she's not going to press any more charges. So it's very mysterious that all of a sudden she's not pressing charges. Yeah, I, yeah, she sits him down. You know, she. Oh, by the way, uh, James Hong, bro, as the yeah, butler. Hong. I I, I kind of popped for that when I saw him. Of Doesn't course, man. But you know, she sits him down. She has a uh, James Hong bring him some iced tea, <laughs> and she's like, you know, listen, uh, don't worry about the lawsuit. I'm just I'm gonna drop it. Like it's fine. And then he's like, okay, well that may all be well and good, but I'm still trying to find out who's trying to mess with me. Like this is not. Like I'm, I'm Jake Giddis. Nobody does that to me. He says, "I'm a paraphrasing." That's basically what he's saying. Uh, we also get a nice little. Um, what's the quote that the uh, the gardener tells him uh, about glass? At first, we think he's talking about glass, but bad for glass. bad for glass, right, or something. Mm-hmm. So obviously, we just think, oh, that's just some random line that doesn't really matter, but it does matter. It'll matter later. But it's just I love again. Put the little teases there on the surface. What, who cares about bad for glass, right? But it'll it, it'll come back later in a big way. And again, I I love that about this film. So interestingly enough, when he's at this house, something that I, that I noticed, like there's a couple little things that I noticed. Um, first, when he's like kind of waiting to be let into the house, you see that um, that uh, there's somebody washing washing a car. But LA's in the middle of a drought, right? So like it's kind of wasteful to be washing a car right now. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't really mean a lot. It just kind of goes just kind of makes you think a little bit, you know? Right. And also there's this they have this like beautiful pond and fountain in the backyard that's like, you know, techn- you know, probably wasting a lot of water as well. But uh another thing I noticed is that this this movie being called Chinatown, all of her servants, like her butler, the guy washing the car, the gardener, the maid they're all Asian, and I'm assuming Chinese. And I don't know what it's trying to say here. Like, if, if there's a specific reason for casting all Asian actors for these roles. I don't know if they're if the movie's trying to say something, but I find it interesting. Yeah, the, it, it's a little unclear, like, if there's any, like, specific intent. I mean, there has to be some, because I, I don't feel like Polanski's the, the one that just kind of makes random choices like that. Everything he does, like, directors like him, everything's deliberate. So I'm sure there is something to it, but I mean, like you, I can't really tell you what it is specifically. Um, and the other thing that happens in this scene is that he sees something in like the the kind of man-made pond that they have in the back. 
um, like kind of glittering in the in there. And he tries to get it, but then he gets interrupted and he doesn't go back for it. We find out what it is a little later, but this, it's something that kind of it pops up, you know, and then like. Right. So when it pops up later, you're like, oh, yeah, that thing. What is that thing? Yeah. Again, again, once again, just a little clue that really at, on the surface isn't really. It's interesting. It's a little more interesting than some of the other like mundane stuff that ends up being important later. Because it's something that, like, it's you know, it's like an artifact. Like, it glitters. Like, it's it's meant to get your attention, right? But like you said, before he can get it, he's interrupted, and he just forgets about it. But again, it's just another example of a, a nugget being planted for something that's going to grow into a, a big payoff later. So the following, this is where we were talking about earlier, where he finds, he goes back to the scene uh, by the beach, and uh, where he was earlier investigating, and, you know, he finds a bunch of cops crawling all over the place, and he uses a uh, Yelburton's card to get in, saying that he's uh, Mr. Yelburton. <laughs> and he Again, runs that, it, that's payoff number one. Yeah, and he runs into some old cop buddies of his, and you kind of get you kind of get the backstory here that Giddis used to be a cop, and he used to patrol in Chinatown. And uh, he's asking some questions about Hollis Mulray, and he's like, "Yeah, I'd like to talk to him." Oh, you'd like to talk to him? Uh, well, you're welcome to try. And then they. Uh, right after that, they fish uh, Hollis's body out of the out of the reservoir, and he is dead. So now this whole thing becomes a murder investigation. Yep. Yeah, and um, I just want to uh, not with much to add to the scene, but I do want to add uh, about uh, Perry Lopez as Lieutenant Escobar. He, he's a, this is a really good performance because it's, it's really uh, like on the surface he he looks like kind of this upstanding kind of cop, right? But you know, as you go through the movie, he's kind of just as scummy as everybody else in, in his own way. So, but it's just it, it's paid very impeccably by by Perry Lopez, and I, I just wanted to shout his performance out because I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, especially when he's questioning um, uh, Mrs. Mulray. He's not very uh, he doesn't have a lot of tact, right? He's just kind right. of asking like these questions, like because he probably you know he. Probably, and he actually definitely suspects her because later on he definitely suspects her. Um, but uh, he's he's not very tactful with with the with how he uh, handles the situation. And uh, Giddis has to basically come in and kind of kind of lead her away from from the situation. But um, yeah, Lopez is kind of a he's not necessarily corrupt. I never got the point that he was corrupt. Yeah, he's he's certainly out for his own ends. Like he's certainly like. You know, he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to, to get to get what he wants accomplished. Also, I find it interesting that, like, and again, I don't know anything about L.A. in the 40s, but I, I feel like it's interesting that a, you know, Hispanic officer, and I'm assuming Mexican because they're in L.A., uh, would, would rise to that kind of rank. Like, I feel like back in those days, it would have been a little too racist for that to happen, but who knows? That's a good point. I could, I could, uh, that could be a, uh, I guess, a discrepancy in that, but. And then we find out, uh, you know, he basically goes back to the corner and, and talks to the corner, and they, they confirm that the guy was drowned, was drowned, and uh, but the body had been moved. Um, but uh, the thing with with that is where they think he was drowned was in that dry riverbed where there was no water in it at all. Right, and I think they also mentioned that somebody else came and drowned from like the same spot, like this, uh, this I guess a hobo or what a drunkard that they uh, kind of used, used to have hanging around that area. They found him also drowned uh, from the same spot. So 
Giddis is like, okay, this, that's that's weird. So he goes back to that spot, and I think the first time it, I, I think we forgot to mention there was like a little boy on horseback that uh, Hollis was talking to. I guess about like the water. We don't even know what they're talking about because the dialogue is inaudible. But when Giddis goes back, the same kid uh, shows up and he starts talking to him. Like, you know, what did he ask you about? Like, oh, you know, he's just asking me like how I think he said like something about how the water ran from, you know, in this location or like how it was. Something to that effect. I don't remember exactly what he said, but that kind of gives Giddis like his his new lead. Like, okay, like what? Like I think he went back to Yelburn after after that, but I don't remember. Like you can probably shed light on that part. No, not quite. He he. Um, after that talk with the coroner and everything, he goes back to the um, once again goes back to like that reservoir area, um, and starts investigating. But this time, people are there, uh, like Mulvihill Hill shooting at him, and um, and then someone uh. Someone comes up to him, actually played by Polanski himself, tells him not to mess around too much, and cuts his nose. Oh, I hate that scene, man! Oh, that that like, and that's. Do you? Here's my question: When I when I first saw it, does that much blood come out when you slice somebody's nose? Like that was, I think that was a little bit, uh, a little bit much there. Like it literally, like it squirted up. Like I, I didn't know that could happen when you slice somebody's nose. But I mean, hey, I mean it was a cool effect. It is a really cool effect because you don't see it cut, right? Like, yeah, uh, not sorry. I mean, you don't see the the, the film cut. Not, yeah, yeah, I know what you meant. Because you see the knife in his nostril, and then he flicks it up, and the camera doesn't move. You're still on the shot, and as yep. he flicks it up, you see the blood squirt. So that's a really cool practical effect that they did. I'm not sure how they did it, um, but yeah, it, I don't want to know. That's part of the magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically, he's being warned. Hey. Get, stay out of this. You done your business, which of course makes him want to keep investigating. I always believe Al Pacino stored that mountain of cocaine for real. Like that's not like no <laughs> dry milk or whatever they want to call it. Though that was that was that was coke, man. <laughs> no one will take the magic away from me. <laughs> uh, what bothered me about this though is that I, I wrote a status about it, but like if you just had your nose sliced open. Why do you keep smoking? That just seems <laughs> like it's gonna hurt a lot more. Yeah. Like, just maybe, maybe quit the cigarettes for a while until that heals up. I don't know if, if I guess if that was just a natural instinct for people that lived back then, because obviously they didn't know the dangers of smoking in the forties. So, um, I mean, that was just like one of those like ticks that people had. Like, oh, you know, I'm stressed. Oh, I'm gonna smoke. Like, oh, I'm just sitting here like with nothing to do. I don't have a, a smartphone to distract me. Oh, I'm gonna smoke. Like I just, it's just what they did. Yeah, it's just a, it's just the whole thing. The whole thing with the nose bothers me. Yeah. But it's interesting that you know you have Jack Nicholson here, an A-list movie star, and he spends half the movie with like this thing covering his face, like the big huge bandage, right? Which uh, just as a Jack Nicholson fan bothered me. You know, <laughs> I hated seeing that for like half the movie. So we get a conversation in his office where he's talking to his like two buddies, and they're like, "Well, do you want to get Mulva Hill?" He's like, "No, I want to get who's paying Mulva Hill." So, like, he's, he knows that there's something up. He knows that there's a big conspiracy going on here. He knows, like, somehow Evelyn's involved. Somehow, like, Mulville's involved. Mulray was involved. Like, he knows something's up. And he wants to make sure, like, he wants to, he wants to get them. So, at this point, no one's paying him to do this. He just wants to find out because he's, he's pissed off about it. But as he's, um, as he's there, he gets a call uh, from a woman 
And it turns out it's the first Mrs. Evelyn Mulray who, who tricked them. Basically, she says she's a prostitute uh, and that she she is a kind of basically she says you're going to need to look in the obituary section tomorrow uh, for some clues. She doesn't give him any more information than that. So he grabs the obituary section and like keeps it. And that comes into play a little later. But he basically but that's the last you really hear of her or well from her, I should say. Because uh, then after that, he meets up with the real uh, Mrs. Mulray, uh in the in a restaurant, and they have a drink. And he basically lays out to her, I know something's going on. I think you're somewhat involved in it, and I'm going to find out why. Yeah, and she just she's very defensive. Like, you know, I don't know what she's talking about. You know, this. And then they kind of go into, like, you know, her marriage with, with Mulray, like that. Very mundane details in a way, but it's just in the end, it's her way of trying to just, you know, kind of deflect any involvement in whatever he's investigating. Like, you know, this is just, you know, this was my life with Hollis. You know, he did this, I did that, and you know, I don't know what what you're investigating, but like, I don't, I really, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't have any part of it. So, you know, Giddis is just, you know, in his own way, he just kind of sits there, kind of listens to that. He's like, yeah, you know, in a paraphrasing obviously he just basically says we'll see and then you know he goes on his way i think this after this like sit down with with evelyn that's when he goes to um see yell burton again um and then and he oh and by the way before before that she uh, kind of lets it drop that uh her her middle initial stands for cross which is her maiden name right that comes up here in the in this uh conversation next scene yeah because uh, as he's there, Yelburton won't see him. So he basically says, so he's like, oh, I'll wait for him. And he just starts being super annoying to the to the secretary to the point where she's like, I have to, she just needs to get rid of him. And, and actually has Mr. Burton, Yelburton come in and see him. But while, while he's doing that, he's walking around the office looking at all these pictures of Noah Cross and asking questions like, and where he's getting the answer like, well, Noah Cross was the one who started everything and he started it with Mulray and uh, Mulray was married obviously to, to Evelyn and cross was, just, uh, cross was her father. And, uh, you know, at one point, uh, cross wanted to make the water private and Mulray wanted to make it public. And they got in a huge argument about that and never spoke to each other again. So we get all this kind of back, back exposition here. Yes. And it's just perfect place for it too. Like, you know, you're seeing kind of all these, like, characters that somehow have to line up, but they're not really lining up yet. And then you have this scene in the office, and then the secretary is basically doing the exposition for you. Okay, this is the backstory. This is Noah Cross. You know, he was partners with Mulray. Mulray married his daughter. They had a falling out because they want, you know, Noah Cross wanted this and Mulray wanted that. It, it, it's really, really cool. You know, like in just about like what a five minute scene, you get all this exposition and, and really it, it, it just it moves the narrative forward in a big way. So when Yelburton finally sees him, you know, he's basically saying, oh, I thought this case was done. Like uh, you're going to work for Mrs. Mulray. He goes, oh, I never was. Uh, and so you think he's going to start saying talking about like the prostitute or everything. But instead he goes, oh, I think that uh, someone hired him. I think someone you decided to. Uh, you decided to hire her and basically starts um, trying to put the pieces together and, and assigning blame here because he knows that there's something wrong. Right. Yeah. And uh, he pretty much uh, 
just I think this is where he accuses Yelbert of kind of being in on the on the grift, whatever that grift is. But he says, you know, I'm going to find out. You know, and of course, you know, Yelburn's like, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, that's an outrageous accusation. And again, like, you know, Giddis just, again, being his smug self is like, yeah, 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 we'll see. You know, again, like kind of the way he he acted toward Evelyn. He does the same thing to Yelburn. Like, yeah, I mean, you're saying you're not involved in this, but, you know, I want to find out. Yelburn also kind of lets loose some little some facts about because like Giddis is trying to say, look, I know that you guys are dumping water in the middle of a drought. And I think the, the newspaper might want to, might know something to do with that. And then Yelburn's like, well, look, we have some issues with some irrigation and with these farmers, and these farmers don't have any right to that water. So, you know, sometimes we have to divert the water and it goes off, blah, blah, blah. So you come on, come up with some excuses. And this is why you know, like, some of the, why you understand now why some of the farmers are getting angry at the water company. Yeah. Kind of just, and now it adds a, another layer to that whole town hall scene. Like, yeah, the farmers are mad. You kind of understand why. But not really. But then after this scene with Yelburn, you, you, it comes more into focus now. Like, why? Why the, the, these guys are pissed? Yeah. So um, we get another scene back at Giddis's office. And this is sh- just straight out of like a like the Maltese Falcon or something. Because as he opens his office door, there's like this femme fatale standing by the, by the window smoking her cigarette. I was like, this is mm. very like, you know, film noir-ish right here. Um, perfect, man. Yeah, it, it's real good here. Um, I forget what exactly she, she information she gives in the scene. Um, trying to remember. Uh, I oh, think this is where he confronts her, saying like, you know, Noah Cross is your father, and that she's very like ho hum and quiet about it. Like she you know she meant she just confirmed that he is, but then she's like she'll like try to change the subject because she doesn't want to talk about him. But you don't understand really why. Like, you know, he'll keep mentioning her father and then she'll just like get like one word answers or just kind of like skirt the, the issue. So that's when you start realizing, OK, maybe they had a falling out, maybe because she married Hall. It's like you don't know why. Right. You're just assuming now because she's really trying her best to avoid having to talk about him. And I think this is where she officially hires him. Yes. Um, to find out what happened to her husband. And then uh, shortly after this, he goes and actually meets with uh, Noah Cross in one of the probably the. I think probably one of the best scenes in the movie. This came out the same year as Godfather two and Robert De Niro won the Academy award for best supporting actor. But if he had not been in contention that year, John Houston should have gotten that role because he is tremendous here. And he only has like two scenes in the movie, but he's yeah. so good at being like this, like kind of like grandfatherly guy, but so menacing at the exact same time. John Houston here is just very like he gave me the he gave me the creeps to be honest with you like I don't really know how to put else else into words other than just to say it like that he just has that very I guess disturbing in a way presence about him because obviously you know he's involved in this somehow like you don't know how yet and, and remember this is you know you're viewing this for the first time. You kind of have a vague idea so far of who Noah crosses from the exposition scene, but in the end, like I, I watching this scene, you're like, okay, he's being all nicey nice with him, but like this is this guy's the definition of a carny conniver. Like he's involved somehow, and and we're gonna we're gonna find out eventually, like what his role is in all of this. But the way like he kind of just kind of tries to pass off, oh, you know, my, my daughter, you know, she's been disturbed lately. You know, she has issues like she's seen like we've had her see doctors or well, however he said it. Right. 
just trying to make Evelyn seem like the crazy one in all this. Just, but 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 the way he says it in that kind of that calm demeanor, like everything's okay as he's as he's talking about like his daughter being crazy. That's again, it just adds to that whole creepy layer to it. Just wonderful work here by John Houston. And then even better when we see him again, like in, in his follow-up scene, which I mean is at that point practically the end of the movie, but um just nice again laying the foundation for the big payoff later and he just great work here he basically and he also you get the um the bit of plot point where he's like well first of all evelyn's paying him to to find the what happened with Mulray's, and now he now he's asked now he's basically paying him asking to pay him to be to find the girl that that he was supposedly sleeping with the mistress yeah the mistress, right? So now it's now it's getting interesting because why does Noah Cross have an interest in this girl? Why does he need her? Why does he want her? What's he trying to find out? You find out it's a lot more sinister yep. uh, a little later on, but it's uh, but yeah, he's great. And John Houston is so good in this in this scene, and he's good later on. But like, he's so just such a menacing figure in this scene. Yeah, menacing. That's the that's the word I was looking for. Perfect. Perfect description of this whole it's just a menacing atmosphere, just very uh very kind of terrifying in a way. We get a short little scene here where um uh Gittis, or Mr. Gitz uh goes to the La Hall of Records, finds out that uh some new land is being bought up um in like the in the valley, I guess. Um but when he goes out there, he's like not seeing a whole bunch uh of kind of stuff going on there. But he goes into like an orange grove um, <laughs> where he gets shot at and then promptly beaten up uh, because these the, the farmers of this orange grove think that uh, he's somebody somebody there to kind of put the pressure on them. Yeah, somebody from the water department, apparently. And uh, yeah, I mean, he puts up a, a good fight, but I mean, it's three against one. So eventually he gets his ass beat and uh, it gets knocked out. Right. So uh, afterwards, um, uh, Evelyn picks him up and he decides that he's going to go over to the um, like a resting home, like a like an old folks home. And uh, he kind of lies his way into basically saying that he's going to be looking for a place for his dad. But uh, really what he wants to see if there are anybody uh, if there's anybody in there that matches the names on the uh, registry for the land that was bought. So basically he found one of the names in the obituary. And then he finds some other people in the old folks home who are clearly not with it. So he's putting together that somebody is buying land in the names of these people um, for for some sort of uh, for some sort of use. And obviously, it's all tied in with the water company and and what's going to happen with that land and it's going to become valuable land and everything. But uh, but yeah, so this is this is him just finding out uh, there's some kind of senile people in here that technically own land but they don't know that they own it the uh i guess the the manager of the nursing home kind of realizes what's what's going on <laughs> so he uh get uh grabs Giddis and he leads him out to, to the front door where i think mulva hill is there right yep mulva is there kind of threatens him a little bit um but uh he gets into a fight beats him up and uh runs away and and uh in the car with evelyn and uh, gets away. Gets away. Yeah, you see Polanski try to come at him again, but uh, he's able to. Uh, they're able to escape before he can do anything. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if we mentioned that earlier, but the guy with the knife is Polanski. Yeah, uh, put his nose up. 
we're back at the uh, Evelyn's house, and uh, they start maybe flirting a little bit. They end up uh, in bed together. Yeah. Yes. Uh, classic film noir style, like mm-hmm. he, he falls for the girl that he's kind of sort of investigating. Right. Um, and then the while they're in bed, you get a little bit of background on on uh, on Giddis basically saying he used to be a cop. And he used to work in Chinatown, but he kind of left because he just didn't, you know, like everything that was happening there and just too much for him. When the phone rings and she get and Evelyn gets a mysterious phone call and she's like, I have to go and, and you know, just trust me, I have to leave. And of course, he's not going to trust her and he's going to follow her and see what's going on. Yes. Yeah, so he ends up following Evelyn to a house. And by the way, I, I this is one of my. Uh... I have to show appreciation for this. The op- the establishing shot of that house, it's a, it's amazing. I love how. So it op- it comes up on the house, right? And then you see, uh, Jake's car kind of pull up in front of the camera, and cover the house, right? And then it kind of slowly tilts up over the car, like the hood of the car, over the house, and you get that really cool shot. Right, and it's just amazing camera work here. Like I, I, I don't know what it is about that shot, man, but like I saw it and I was just like, oh, that's that's excellent work right there. Just, I, it really sets the mood. Um, I just, I mean, it, I don't know how else to explain it, but it's one of those things. Like you, you know how sometimes you just you just watch something, whether it's like a cut or a shot, and you just like you just appreciate the craft that went into that and just how cool it looks. That's what that shot is to me. Like it's just one of those things that just randomly like I just see it and I just like whoa, like. That was really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's some good filmmaking here, despite who made it. It's a good filmmaking here. Yeah. So as he gets to this house, uh, he follows her, he follows Evelyn. He's looking in the windows, and he sees, very oddly, that um, uh, Hollis's girlfriend is in this house being kept against her will. And Evelyn knows about it. And uh, her uh, butler, who I forget the butler's name, is also there. So this is sudden uh, James Hong, man. They just call him James Hong. <laughs> so suddenly all this is coming very interesting. And we now we always knew, we always thought that Evelyn was probably mixed up more than she let on. But now we really know that something's really up with her. So you're thinking at this point, you know, first time viewer, is that the mistress? Did she kidnap the mistress? Like, is she that like, is she that crazy? Like her father says, maybe her father was right. Maybe she is crazy. She's kidnapped the mistress. Maybe she wants to get revenge on her. Like, who knows? We don't know. All we know is there's this blonde girl at that house that she's has there. We don't know if it's, it's mutual, if it's a, a kidnapping, and we don't know who she is. So a lot of questions right now. You're just confused right now as an audience member. And, you know, speaking of great shots, um, there's another great shot right after this that I that I really appreciated. It's you see the cars kind of in shadow as uh, Evelyn walks out of the house to get into her car. But on the very corner of the win- uh, of the rearview mirror, you see Jake's eye. Yes, and, and it's it's such a really good shot. Like, so if you're not paying attention, you're kind of surprised that he's there. But whenever you are paying attention, you like, and she comes in and sits in the car, you're like, oh, there he is. You know, uh, it's a very it's a very cool shot. I really I really appreciated that shot. Yeah, that's another great one. A lot of great <laughs> great camera work here. And he basically confronts her. He's like. It looks to me like you've got your husband's mistress tied up and kidnapped, and uh, he, he and she's he wants basically 
<laughs> to reference another uh, Jack Nicholson film, he wants the truth. <laughs> and we get bombshell number one, or what, what we think is a bombshell. She admits to him that uh, the girl's name is Catherine, and that is her sister. Just, so we're led to believe, yeah, that um, that the sister is the mistress, is, is the actual mistress. That like she was like having an affair with, with with Mulray or something, right? So, uh, and then obviously she's saying, oh, well, she's kept, we're we're keeping it up because she's distraught about his death, and you know, she, whatever, right? So that that's a pretty big uh big info drop there. So it, it it's interesting. Like, okay, so supposedly like that's her sister, and you know. She's she's also the mistress. So, <laughs> I mean, you're still kind of confused as as an audience member, but then like you're going along with saying, okay, there's something, there's more to it. It's not just that. Like there has to be something else because she still feels like like. And that's the thing about Faye Dunaway here too is that like she's even as she's telling the truth, like she still has that like body language in a way like she, you know she's still hiding something, but you don't know what it is. So you can't take what she's saying completely at face value. Like there's something else behind it, and it's yeah. communicated perfect through like the way Faye Dunaway kind of reads the dialogue, and she's like the body language she has while she's talking to Jay. Like you just know that she's still hiding something. And then on uh, so after that, he goes home and he gets a uh, a mysterious call, basically saying, "Hey, you might want to go to this address." And he's like, "I'm not going to any address." And he's he's like, "Just trust us. Go to this address." Which, of course, he does. But in my mind, if I was him, I'm like, I'm not going to that address. Are you nuts? <laughs> uh, so he goes to that address. He finds that the door has been uh, broken into. Um, the lights are all off. He's, he's searching around the house. And then he finds the dead body of the uh, fake Mrs. Mulray lying on the floor. And, right, and then that's whenever the uh, cops uh, where uh, Escobar basically surprises him. And as like, he's like, what are you doing here? What, what, why are you here? So I think this is what they tell, um, they tell Jake that I think they did the autopsy of Mulray and they found the salt water in his lungs. So obviously he didn't drown where they found him in that freshwater reservoir. So he was obviously drowned somewhere else where there is salt water and he was brought to the reservoir to make it look like he drowned there. So now the plot thickens. <laughs> And then they also, I, do they, at this point, did they believe that Mrs. Mulray is the, the suspect? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, he also has a really, uh, he has a great line where, where someone asks him, how'd you get that scar on your face? He's like, well, I was with your wife last night. She crossed your legs too fast. <laughs> That's says, wow. <laughs> great line. He basically kind of uh, tells, he tells Escobar some of the stuff he knows, not everything. Um, but basically enough to kind of get out of there. And he tries to show them where the where the water dumps out of the reservoir, um, but it's obviously not happening whenever he's, he wants it to happen. So Escobar lets him go, uh, but now now kind of things start ramping up. Uh, where Giddis goes back to the to the house, Devlin's house, and he sees that all of her stuff is getting packed up, and like the maid is is saying that oh she's not here, but all of her furniture is getting packed up and everything. And um, he goes back in, in the back, and the same gardener says something along the, oh, bad for glass, seawater, back for glass. And then he's like, wait, seawater? So now um, he's wondering, he's starting to suspect that uh, something's up with that pond, and he sees that there were glasses in that pond. So now his, his whole suspect, his, he, he suspects that Hollis was murdered and drowned in that pond and then moved. Right, so now, like, 
the the sneaking suspicion of that is like that's that's pretty huge you know like for um i love my favorite part about this it was the realization that he was just uh he interpreted the gardener's broken english as glass when he was actually saying grass right and then that's when it hits him like you know seawater bad for glass no wait bad for grass so then he realizes that the pond is actually there's salt water right and then when he goes back to the pond and starts looking at it again, he notices that the object from the beginning of the movie is still there that he noticed. And he picks it up as the pair of bifocal glasses, which as the audience, you know, the first time you're watching, you're led to believe, no, maybe those belong to Hollis, but not quite as we'll find out later. Right. So he, he runs, he runs over to uh, the house where he found uh, um, Evelyn with, with uh, Catherine, the, the little sister and he's uh, he wants to know what's happening, what's going on, because he found the glasses, so he knows that someone must have been killed in that in that pond, um, and and he and he calls the police and says, you know, they're on their way, so you got to tell me the truth right now. He's got his own theories about what's going on, but basically he wants to know what's happening, who this girl really is, where she goes. She's my sister, and then she goes, and then he slaps her, <laughs> very then, un-PC, like yeah. She goes, she's my daughter. And this is a very famous, uh, very famous quote. I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister and my daughter. And then we find out in a very gross way that um, Noah Cross had raped uh, Evelyn at some point and um, she got pregnant and gave birth to Catherine. So she is technically both her sister and her daughter. And uh, the reason that Noah Cross wants her back is because he knows he can't have Evelyn back, but he really wants Catherine. And if he was willing to rape his daughter, he's probably going to do the same with his granddaughter. So this is where it gets really. Well, his daughter slash granddaughter, bro. That's <laughs> yes, she's both. Granddaughter, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> You'll never get back that first that first time watching this and getting that revelation. Because you're just your your jaw is like your jaw drops when you hear it, man. It's just it's a huge, huge, huge bomb, right? And it's just like at first, like once you put it together, before even as Jake is putting it together, so are so you as the audience, and then you're like, no way, and then you're just you're just in shock. Like this is this is a great scene, man. Just every just the way it was structured up to the point where it's finally revealed. And just maximum effect, just just a great scene. Yeah, and since he already called the cop, so basically he decides to let her go so she can get on a train to, to leave town. Um, but he wants her to get away from the cops, so he already calls. He already called the cops. He's going to stay there to basically lead him on a wild goose chase because um, he knows that they're going to want to arrest him because because uh, he thinks he's hiding evidence. So what he does is he tells him he's going to go to this one. Oh, I know where the house is. He's at. Uh, she's at her his her maid's house or her butler's house. I can't remember what he told him, but he's uh takes him. Well, let me go in and get her, and then I'll bring her out. 
and they stupidly let him. But when we find out is that he goes into the house, it's actually Burt Young's house from the beginning. <laughs> of the movie. We yeah. see that his wife opens the door with uh, black eyes. So, you know, that she uh, she suffered for her, quote unquote, sins. Yeah. Um, and basically, he's like, hey, you want to if you don't want to owe me any more money, I need, I need to do some some favors for me. So he drives him out of the out of the house in his like crappy pickup truck and basically convinces him to drive Evelyn and her family and uh, her sister to the train station. Right. Um, and I think uh, what happens is hold on, I'm trying to remember. So uh, so Paulie picks uh, he Paulie drives off with uh, with Jake. Right. And then I think what happens is doesn't he like drop off her stuff at the at the butler's house? I think I don't remember, but yeah, in Chinatown, in yeah. Chinatown. Yes. So that's where everybody's like, that's the rendezvous point. They're going to meet up with James at James Hong's uh, house in Chinatown. Um, and then along the way, I think that's when Giddis, uh returns to the, her house and confronts cross. Right. And then this is where you find out what really happened to, to Hollis. You get the big conspiracy reveal where the bad guy drops the plan, you know. Yeah. He basically he basically admits to all the wrongdoings, you know, from Hollis's death uh, to the fact that he's screwing the city to to get more uh, with the water to get, you know, to re divert the water to those farms to make himself rich. And he, there's a great line. How much are you worth? He's like, oh, I don't know. He's like, is it over 10 million? He's like, oh, yes. He's like, well, then why are you doing this? How much? What can you buy that you can't already afford? It's a it's a great like little seat, little kind of conversation there. It's it's funny. I had to stop myself from thinking that's it when he said ten million. I'm like ten million is nothing now, but of course in the 1940s that was like that was uh, it could have been a billion at that point, you know. But uh, but yeah, <laughs> I remember seeing it for the first time and him saying, "Oh, I'm worth ten million." I'm like, that's it. <laughs> I, I, I get why you're doing this now. But no, <laughs> I just I just in 2020 standards, I thought that was just funny. Uh, so they basically he he's kind of his time is up. They take him to the Chinatown. Uh, uh, they take him to the Chinatown address, and the uh, the cops are also there. Escobar is also there, and he basically says, "You're going to be here for extortion." I'm I'm, I'm uh, I don't care about the Snow Cross guy. It doesn't matter. Uh, we're here to get Evelyn. Cross, you know, tries to approach. Catherine and try to take her and Evelyn is trying to you know move her away you know you're never gonna get near her you know all this and she's trying to like basically run away from uh from Noah Cross and like he he keeps like following her like you know just you know I need to be with her you know she needs to know me you should know who I am like she will never know who you are and then you know out of desperation Evelyn you know takes out a gun and shoots Cross and you're like whoa (laughs) but importantly enough she shoots him like in the arm she doesn't shoot him in like a critical spot right um i, th- I believe it's the arm or like the the shoulder or something but not like in the chest um so the the so she starts to run away the cops shoot after her and then end up uh killing uh killing evelyn uh because uh, well, suddenly the the car st- comes to a halt you hear Catherine screaming and as they get up there in a very gory makeup job you see that uh, he, she got one right through the eye. Yep. And uh, in all the commotion and all the panic, what happens? Uh, Noah Cross gets up there, takes Catherine away with him, and she's she's stuck with him. 
uh, that was that was the most heartbreaking thing, dude. <laughs> watching that again, I forget. Like it hit me again as if I was watching it for the first time. Like you know, he you see him like you see him not dead, obviously. Like he's wounded, but you know he has enough strength to grab Catherine and just take her away with him. And you're like, dude, the the bad guy won. <laughs> the bad guy won. And you're just pissed. So he he kind of takes her away, and you know. Not great things are going to be in her future. Obviously, Giddis is pissed about what happened. He, but he's kind of like, he has this face of like kind of calm, but you know he's just angry. Yeah. Um, and Escobar is basically telling him, just go away. Like, forget I'm, it. For, just forget everything. Forget yeah. about this. I'm doing you a favor. And of course, he tries to like, you know, go back and take a swing at him. And uh, his partners told him back and say the very famous line. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. And then that's it. And then you know they they you see them like you know walk away together, like him and and his associates, his friends. And then you see like the camera tilt up in that panning shot, and that's it. That's the end. Turn them loose. Turn them all loose. favor take him home take him home just get him the hell out of here go home jake Very, very dark ending for that film. Yeah. Um, yeah, you see uh, Giddis, who started off as like a sleazy uh, sleazy private investigator. Along the way, he, try, he tries to see what's going on because he got, uh, he kind of got screwed over. But then after that, he starts to kind of develop a bit, a bit of a conscience and tries to find out what's actually going on and what, what do the right thing. And at the end, the person that he was trying to protect dies. And the other one is taken away for presumably a very, very um, abusive lifestyle. So he did nothing. He's changed nothing and he accomplished nothing. And that is a very grim ending. And then, you know, I've been really thinking about this in a way as far as uh, just the Jake character and how he's kind of progressed from the beginning up to, you know, up to this point. And, it almost seems like, yeah, it seems like his own action, just like the plan that he devised for Evelyn to escape, like all this ended up leading to her death. When you step back and, and think about it a little, it's almost like he did it. It seems like in his own mind, like in his own ego, he's trying to like be the hero, be the the face that kind of, you know, not necessarily saves Evelyn, but kind of just kind of puts a stop to this conspiracy. And just he wants to come out of this like looking like, you know, the big shot hero. Right. 
but in his own like due to his own selfishness and due to his own ego like he come up with all these things that end up you know causing you know her death and it's just one of those things that i, I kind of it's, it's the perfect twist to a character that you kind of like you expect the character that to go from like this kind of sleazy beginning to like you know he kind of has that arc where he redeems himself well he tries to do that but in the end like his own like selfishness and ego kind of prevent that from having the happy ending that he's kind of you know in a, in a typical hollywood movie you would expect him to have but you know because you know of that character flaw in him in a way that he's really doing this not necessarily to protect evelyn but you know to satisfy his own ego you get the result that you get and it's uh it's just really cool writing and development there yeah it's it's a it's great writing like again, if it wasn't for Godfather Two, it'd probably be the best movie of that year, you know. Yeah. Uh, but what a just a fantastic film. Um, probably one of Nicholson's best performances. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of. Uh, I mean, obviously he's uh, he's got a ton of stuff under his belt, but definitely one of his best performances of all time. Absolutely. Um, so Chinatown, um, it has a pretty great legacy. It. Uh, was nominated for, I believe, 10 Academy Awards, uh, including picture, director, actor, actress for Nicholson and Dunaway, screenplay, and then some technical awards like art direction, cinematography, and costume, editing, score, and sound. And for art direction and costume, definitely. I mean, that you were definitely transported back to <clears throat> this film. Um, it only won one, and that was for screenplay. So well-deserved there. But I think this was the, again. This was the year that Godfather Two like pretty much beat them all in all in all the categories there. Yeah, it was. It appeared on. It has appeared on many AFI lists. It uh, ranked number nineteen in their hundred movies, number sixteen in their hundred thrills. Noah Cross is ranked as the sixteenth villain in their villains uh, countdown. Ooh. The line "Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown" is ranked number seventy fourth in their hundred movie quotes, ranked number ninth in their film scores. And uh, ranked second in their top ten mysteries, so so the AFI gives it plenty of love. So I'm going back to some of the awards here, and did you know that it won? It beat Godfather two at the Golden Globes for drama. Let me see, and then comedy or musical, The Longest Yard one, which I think is hilarious, but <laughs> but the original Longest Yard is a good movie. Uh, and then Jack Nicholson did win Best Actor, also motion picture drama for Chinatown. So. Yeah, so uh, it made uh, twenty nine million dollars at the box office, which is uh, in twenty twenty dollars is about one hundred and fifty five million. So very, it's a big success for them. Good showing, yeah. So good, good financial, big financial success, critical success, uh, awards success, uh, an all time, you know, an all time great film. You can watch Chinatown pretty much on any digital streaming platform for rent uh, at two ninety nine. Um, or you can buy it in most places for nine ninety nine. Although you can buy it for on four K streaming on Amazon for sixteen ninety nine. Um, I don't believe it's streaming anywhere on any service for free right now. Um, so no Amazon Prime or, or Netflix or anything like that. I, I don't think there's any there's much in the way of special edition Blu rays. Um, I have a Steelbook. A Blu-ray for it, um, but the I believe it's just the the actual content on the Blu-ray is no different than the regular Blu-ray. So there's no big special edition here. Um, this is something that could probably use like a 
someone like whether it's Shout Factory or Criterion or somebody doing like a, a really nice release. But right now there's no like special physical release. Do you have the same steelbook I have? Is it the one with the? It just has uh, Jack and Faye on the cover. Um, yes, it's like black background and yeah. Okay, that's the same one I have. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much it. That's like the only special release I could find, and uh, and the disc itself isn't all that much as far as extras go. Yeah. So it's just begging for like one of those like boutique labels to do something with. Yeah, it. A boutique label should pick this one up. I mean. Uh, I, I like Criterion. Criterion would be the most, uh, excuse me, the most obvious one. But yeah, there's nothing. But you can if you if you don't care about that stuff, you can get it on Amazon right now for nine ninety nine on Blu-ray, which is a good price. Know what it is? It's like um, I think some they mentioned this. I think maybe earlier this year. I think because Shout Factory was doing tests, right? And I think just the because of Polanski's situation now, I think they're kind of trying to like tiptoe around him unfortunately you know so it's i don't i don't know if we're really gonna get anything at least for his movies anytime soon like anything like anything extensive because then because you can't even interview the guy so what exactly are you gonna you know but it wasn't that long ago that the the criterion released the rosemary's baby um like it was only like four or five years ago that they released that was it that recent i thought it was longer than that Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I, I feel like I've I've bought it recently. Maybe I just thought I bought it recently. It's, yeah. Um. But it's I feel like, and they, they I don't think they had any Polanski material on their like at least new Polanski material. I'm not sure if they had any archival one. Yeah. It's, been, it's been a while since I watched the disc, but I feel like it can be done. You don't. I mean, you don't need his involvement, right? Like to to talk about certain yeah, things. Yeah, but I feel like also with the, the situation now, like the sales are going to hurt because you know. There's already people like you know under the comments of these like the test release. Oh, I'm not. I'm never gonna support this. I'm not. I like, shame on Shout Factory for doing the you know the the woke people. So, and, you know, I get I get that because I mean he is kind of a piece of garbage for what he did. Um, right. And I understand that philosophy. I I I'm able to compartmentalize things, um, you know, and treat the work separate from the person. Now, if you were to tell me, should Roman Polanski be making movies now? I'd be like, no, let, we know what he did. Let's not give him any work because he shouldn't be working anymore. But Chinatown already happened, and it's in the past. And it's like, mean, what are we going to do? We can't unmake it. You know what I mean? We can't undo it. It's there. And, it's a, and, and rightly or wrongly because of the director, it is a work of art. It doesn't mean you have to support him, you know, but it's it's a good film, you know. But, yeah, I, I totally understand what people are saying. that They don't want to buy it. But I, I just think it, it, that the film itself deserves more than just like a single disc, you know, bare bones Blu-ray, you know? Yeah, I agree. It, it just it needs a lot more than that. And and you know what? The, the, the Blu-ray I have, the, the transfer is nice. It looks good on my TV and everything. But it, so it's not like it's like declining, declining quality, but it just this is a very important film and it should it should be treated like with a little more like fanfare. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially a film like this with the reputation it has. You no, know, it really is one of the greatest films of all time. So it, it really should get more than it currently has right now. All right, so that that is uh that is Chinatown. Um, I hope you hopefully you enjoyed the film and let us know if you uh, liked it or, or or didn't like it or didn't like our review or liked our review. Hopefully you liked it. Um, oh, but, oh, not to, not to interrupt you. Just a quick correction. Actually, the the tenant 
is the one that was coming out from Shout Factory, not Tess. Uh, I think the Criterion had Tess. Okay. All right. So it was yeah. the Tenet. Uh, yeah. The I've never seen the Tenet, but um, yes, I, I, I know the one. I know what you're talking about. Um, so let's... Um, so normally this is when we'd bust out the random movie generator, but uh, I'm not going to do that this time because... Christmas. Uh, it's Christmas. Um, I put up a poll both on Facebook and on Twitter um, for to decide uh, what um, what would be the Christmas movie we would uh, we would uh, uh, debate or review or discuss on the next episode. Uh, the choices on the poll were um, let me try to remember them all. Were the shop around the corner? Remember the night? Meet John Doe? Meet me in St. Louis? The Bishop's Wife, Scrooge, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, <laughs> and uh, oh, and Christmas in Connecticut. So um, across all the polls, it looks like we will now be reviewing on our next episode, The Bishop's Wife. I had a feeling that was going to win, and I'm glad because that's a great movie. It's a great movie. So um, hopefully, uh, so make sure you guys go out and watch that one before our next episode, because as always, we will be spoiling everything. Um, and it is a very charming, uh, charming film, um, but uh, it is pretty much what we need right now in times like these. So The Bishop's Wife will be our next film. Just a little couple plugs here. Just make sure to like, rate, review us on iTunes. Um, make sure you uh, subscribe to us on whatever pod platform that you use. Um, and uh, make sure to follow us at Essential Films on Twitter. And our email is essentialfilmspodcast.com. And the website is essentialfilmspodcast.com. Um, Mr. Mark, do you have any plugs? Uh, so, obviously, you can. I mentioned earlier, you can follow me at SportsKai515 on Twitter. I am doing my uh, December thread every day. I'm adding to it with the uh, current film of the day, as well as any other insights as far as stuff that I've seen on the Deuce or if I read in the Sleazewood Express book. So if you're welcome to follow that, you know, comment, you know, give your thoughts. Uh, we can have a nice discussion. Um, you can also follow Force Respective, our other show on Twitter at FP Movie Podcast. Um, again, with the current situation with the theaters, it's a little hard to, you know, I, I don't want to say, you know, have the will to do a show. It's just like doing the show is like, it's one of those things that we always did, you know, before the pandemic because we would always review the current releases on that show and with really no current theatrical releases going on right now it, it, it's a little hard to like really i guess you know lift that that show up but i do want to do one i guess a year-end show kind of in a way to kind of recap what's been going on in 2020 maybe do some of the streaming releases like mank and some of those other ones that are coming out now and uh you know kind of put a cap on this really crazy weird depressing year that is 2020 so look out for another force perspective by the end of 2020 uh, it'll be our big send-off to the year that wasn't and you know hopefully we can look forward to uh a better 2021 but that that's that's the plan right now let's let's say goodbye to this stupid year <laughs> yeah. this is the worst year ever uh, i i i agree yeah, with... we thought 2016 was bad but oh my god so this is worse I think, you know, 2016 was bad for a lot of reasons, but one of the things, and for, for a lot of, you know, world reasons, political reasons, things like that, one of the things people always talked about were, like, all the celebrity deaths happened in 2016. I think we got more in 2020. I think there were more. 
You might be right about that. I don't know for sure. It doesn't feel that way, only, probably because, you know, the pandemic has kind of c- consumed a lot of that, I guess, press. But you might be right about that. I, don't know. I, I feel like we got so many. We had Sean Connery, you know, Olivia de Havilland. We just lost David Prowse the other day. Yes. Um, Carl Reiner passed away. Uh, I know there's more. I just can't think of any more. But I feel like we lost at least, like, Kobe Bryant, we lost, you know, at least like 10 or like at least 10 notable names plus, you know, other ones. So, like, it's just, oh, this year is the worst. Sure is. And good thing it's almost over. Yeah. Of course, we're still going to have to, like, the first part of 2021 is also going to suck because we're still not going to be done with all this stuff. But, you know, anyway. All right, um, that'll do it for our for us this week. Thanks for listening. Um, make sure to tune in next time for uh, the Bishop's Wife. Other than that, forget it. It's Chinatown.